0: Good afternoon and welcome to uh, another one of our security seminars. It is uh, a distinct pleasure for me today to introduce our guest. Uh, There aren't many people who have been working in security uh, from an academic standpoint uh, longer than I have, Uh, but uh, uh, Virgil was definitely there early on, one of the pioneers in the field. Virgil is a professor of electrical and computer engineering at the University of Maryland uh, where he has been involved in a number of projects over the years. He's the most uh, recent winner of the National Computer Systems uh, Security Award, a very distinct honor, uh, one of the highest honors in the field, and is also currently the chair of the ACM Special Interest uh, Group on Securities Audit and Control. And we're very pleased to be able to welcome Professor Virgil Glicor. So please join me in welcoming him. Thank you, you, you Scott.
1: Thank you for having me. So I'm pleased to be here. This is my third trip to Purdue University. Uh, The last one was in 2001, and the first one in 1977 at the Operating System Symposium, which is held here. So um, what I'd like to talk about today is about adversary models (coughs) and how they evolved over time and what we can learn from this evolution. Uh, and this work is based on some joint work done with uh, Hauen Chen, Brian Parno, and their advisor, Adrian Perig. OK, so here is the overview. Uh, the, the three punchlines, if you want, that I will have are the following. First, the resolution. Security is a fundamental concern of secondary importance. And this sounds paradoxical, but I'll try to justify it, try to justify why is it that I claim it's not just a fundamental concern, but it's a concern of secondary importance. And the second point is that new technologies, um, no matter what they are, they offer to us an insurmountable opportunity to deny both characteristics of the resolution. In other words, change the security from a fundamental concern into a technological concern, uh, and from a secondary importance concern to a primary importance concern. And the third point is uh, that uh, what uh, I've been learned, I, I've learned at least so far is that perfect is the enemy of the good, and we cannot have, have perfect security at least in fra- face of very strong adversaries such as of the kind that I'm going to talk about today. Therefore, we have to uh, learn to put up with good enough. And I'll show you what I believe good enough is. Good enough is always... Um, accompanied in this business by risk analysis, of which we did very little so far, at least in the academia. Okay, so uh, why is security a fundamental concern? So I argue that security is a fundamental concern for two reasons. One is that any new technology that we introduced in computing, and in fact, it doesn't matter what field we introduced a new technology um, we introduce along with the good, the bad, namely uh, new vulnerabilities. And this you can trace back to the Industrial Revolution. Any, any invention which humankind produced, at least since then, um, had not only solved some practical problem and offered new functionality, but it also caused uh, various avenues of attacking whatever systems the technology was used in. Occasionally, these new vulnerabilities which are introduced require the definition of a new adversary. In other words, uh, they are so, these vulnerabilities could be exploited in such powerful ways that the old adversary definitions that we have no longer um, satisfy reality. And of course, um, once we define the adversary we can build uh, new tools and of course backed up by new methods to handle uh, that adversary. It's not clear to me that adversary definitions come before Neutral definitions, or neutral definitions come before the adversary, but nevertheless uh, they, they come in, in some order, and I will not discuss too, too, too much the order in which they appear. So I'll give you some examples of this phenomenon. Uh, they illustrate the first uh, reason why security is fundamental. The second reason why security is fundamental um, is <coughs> that security is a technology-independent concern, namely that if the cost of technology goes to zero, security still remains a fundamental concern. So for those two reasons, I claim it's fundamental. First, any new technology introduces vulnerabilities, possibly new adversaries, possibly a new security problem that we haven't seen before. And second, that no matter what happens to the cost of technology, we still have uh, this, this problem to solve, namely security problem to solve. So let me review what happened over time Um, I'll just take a few examples of what happened uh, to our uh, introduction of new technologies and the definitions of adversaries and vulnerabilities. So the first thing that at least I choose to point to in terms of new technologies appeared in early to mid-60s when people built systems like CTSS at MIT and then Multics at MIT, when in fact uh, with Multics sharing user-mode programs and data, uh, became a goal uh, of the system design, and in order to enable the sharing of user mode programs and data uh, and to define what was used to be called the computing utility, uh, people decided that they had to solve at least three uh, vulnerabilities that would be introduced by this sharing uh, at the user level, not at the system level, we are not talking about sharing compilers or assemblers or uh, assemblers or any other utilities. so first was confidentiality and integrity, and then parallel to that was system penetration. The idea was that if you share user level programs and data, um, users could actually access data generated by other users um, and in fact uh, breach the confidentiality of those data or the um, users could actually, if we don't build the appropriate protection mechanism, could actually corrupt uh, other application data uh, which other users might use. And there are all sorts of instances which, which came up, even very sophisticated ones. Like, for example, we had the notion of memoryless subsystems in which you had a user-level subsystem, which would be a circuit analysis program, used by two competing companies, let's say Intel and Fairchild, and they would use, possibly, uh, hypothetically, this user-level subsystem built at Berkeley for circuit analysis. And this circuit analysis program, which was an application-level program, could actually retain some of the parameters produced by one company and leak them to the other company, breaching confidentiality. In other words, between two instances of invocations by two competing companies, this subsystem maintained memory. So this is one of the these weird cases of of confidentiality breaches that people dreamed up at the time. Um, In order to support these mechanisms that would enable confidentiality and integrity breaches to be prevented, uh, we had to make sure that the system itself was uh, penetration-free. In other words, that some adversary could not circumvent the protection mechanism by actually circumventing the the penetration freedom of the system, by breaching into the system. So we had penetration-resistant concerns. These were vulnerabilities that, that we were worried about. In fact, uh, if you think about 1968, 67, 68, people started looking at uh, parameter checking at the interfaces, uh, including buffer overflow, by the way, uh, parameter checking like address checking, privilege checking, address space checking, and so on. And these were all time of check, time of use. These were all part of the system penetration resistance properties that we were concerned with. Not me, but we as a community. Uh, So who was the adversary at the time? The adversary was an untrusted user mode program, typically, operating on behalf of uh, of a a terminal user, uh, the user sitting in front of a terminal. And uh, in fact, that user mode program could carry out and it did carry out the, the, the wishes of the uh, human user at the terminal. Now, what kind of methods and tools came to handle this problem? So first of all, we separated the system mode from the user mode and made sure that only privileged users entered system mode. And we invented things like rings and security kernels. And this came about 1965 to about 1972. <coughs> We also invented uh, the flow hypothesis methodology, which was basically glorified hacking about 1975, and also some theory of penetration resistance and tools around 1991. Access policy models, the first being the Lamson's access matrix model in 1971. First thing you notice here is that I have some markings on this slide in red below the title. So new technology early to mid-60s methods and tools to handle the vulnerabilities of new technologies, sometimes five, sometimes 10 years later. Okay? So we notice a gap there. And, and bear this in mind. You'll see this gap throughout this set of examples. Second example. In early to mid-70s, we started building and using shared stateful services, such as database management systems uh, and network protocols. Uh, this shared stateful resources use dynamic resource allocation. And lo and behold, we have a new instance of uh, system attacks, which we call denial of service. Um, And in fact, what happened in this case, some group of users, some single user group of users, acting in concert, could in fact prevent other users from accessing these stateful resources for a long period of time, longer than one would care to wait. And that, those kinds of instances of attacks we called denial of service. Now the adversary here, or part of our adversary definition was still the same as before. We have untrusted user level processes uh, operating concurrent or perpetrating concurrent coordinated attacks. Usually these attacks exhausted some sort of quota attached to stateful resources. So denial of service as a separate problem uh, was, in fact, defined only in about mid-'80s. Formal specification and verification techniques for various instances of it, particularly concurrent programs, denial of service and concurrent programs, appeared only in, in late-'80s. And uh, denial of service models appeared only about 1992. Once again, observe the gap. Mid-'70s early to mid-70s and mid-80s to to early-90s when we started seriously addressing this kind of vulnerability which was introduced by our new technology. Other new technologies that follow and these are much more easily identifiable as popular technologies, were the PC, local area networks, uh, which were developed in early to mid-70s. The PCs appeared, the first PC, uh, was basically designed as Xerox PARC about 1973. About the same time Bob Metcalf um, did his PhD at MIT, introducing the ethernet as the first viable, commercially viable local area network, it turned out it became commercially viable. And in in about 1977, we had public domain crypto. Uh, The world was allowed to use cryptography starting with about 1977, 78. Now, the new vulnerabilities that were introduced by these technologies were actually um, perpetrated by adversaries, which we called the men in the middle. The men in the middle sat in the network between a client and the server. The server being uh, basically uh, uh, time-sharing systems in the in the traditional way. The clients operated on PCs. And these uh, men in the middle were actually users of the network themselves who could put their uh, workstation or your, their PC in uh, promiscuous mode, the, the LAN card in promiscuous mode, and sniff all the packets in the network. They could read these packets. They could actually modify these or other packets and reintroduce them uh, into the network. And they could replay and forge messages. These kinds of vulnerabilities uh, were not possible before because we hardly could have an adversary between a terminal and the time-sharing system. We occasionally could, but it was rare. So the man in the middle could launch this active attacks, and it was a full-fledged... Uh, uh, the man in the middle was a full-fledged adversary. Now, the first methods for analyzing this adversary were informal. The first that I'm aware of was the Needham-Schroeder paper that describes the adversary, what the adversary can do to an authentication protocol, followed by Denning and Sacco, uh, the first semi formal model of this adversary was Dolevaniao about 1983, followed by uh, Byzantine adversaries about 1982, followed by adversaries uh, that operated against cryptographic modes uh, such as uh, CBC or such as public key encryption. This were the Goldwasser Mikalina Rivest models about nineteen eighty-four, uh, in which they defined chosen plaintext attacks um, um, and chosen chosen uh, n- non-plaintext attacks. Uh, later followed by 1991, with chosen ciphertext attacks of uh, Simon Arakov. And finally uh, protocol analysis programs, authentication protocol analysis programs appeared about nineteen eighty seven with Milan's interrogator. Once again, notice the gaps between the technology and the time when we actually did something about uh, the kind of problems that the new technologies introduced. Uh, Internetworking compounded the problem. This internetworking really started full-fledged in the mid to late 80s, um, although the IP protocol was defined about 1979. And what we got here were large-scale effects, large-scale denial of service, sometimes distributed denial of service, large-scale worms, Sometimes worms were combined with denial of service attacks as PAFO, noticed uh, in November 1988. Um, and um, we later on started having flooding attacks. And here, the adversary was a geographically distributed adversary, a set of geographically distributed processors that launched these coordinated attacks, which could bring up to, say, about 60% of all the Unix system of the internet down in a single night. Uh what did we do about this well uh we about this kind of attacks um, uh, we did virus scans and tracebacks and intrusion detection, and all this started in the earnest only in about mid nineties once again, the gap okay, so uh with these two points that security is fundamental because it new technologies always have security implications and security persists any decrease in the cost of technology. With this, we move on to say why security is a secondary concern or secondary importance concern. Well, if it were a primary concern, you would not have the gaps that you noticed on the previous slide. What were the gaps? Well, the gaps were sometimes months between the introduction of the technology and the detection of the vulnerability and years before the detection of the vulnerability and the remedy for that vulnerability, an order of years and sometimes tens of years for defining uh, the adversary that perpetrated that, those attacks. If security would be a primary concern, then those gaps would not exist. In fact, what, could ha- what would happen is you'd have maybe a gaps of days, if at all, uh, if any, between, ideally, between the introduction of the new technology and the uh, methods that would counter the new adversary introduced by the technology, okay, or mitigate at least. But we haven't seen that. And whether we are likely to see in the, in the future is unclear. What I'd like to do is to offer an exercise as an example of trying to anticipate new behavior of, of new adversaries. Now, what's the problem with these gaps? The fundamental problem that I see is that we introduce new vulnerabilities, yet we maintain the same adversarial <coughs> model. In other words, we fight the old war. We have a new vulnerability, but, uh, but the, the adversary that we postulate is one that we've seen 10 years ago. Okay? And this is really a problem because we tend to reuse the same kind of protocols and the same type, uh, kind of protection mechanism that we used in the past. So we constantly trail uh, the, the the introduction of new technologies. And that's why I call this uh, security of a, a secondary importance concern, although it's a fundamental concern. Okay, So let me give you an example of a, of a new technology that's being postulated nowadays. And let me show you the new kind of adversary that appears here, which I claim is different from the old adversaries that we've seen before. So the new technologies, what Uh, sometimes people call sensor networks. Uh, These uh, sensor networks are somewhat similar to the traditional embedded wireless networks. These are networks that you see in buildings nowadays for regulating uh, flow of air, uh, heat, and so on, humidity, for example. These are arrays of sensors, which are battery-powered, limited computational and communication capabilities, and, of course, intermittent communication, since they are battery operated, these sensors don't, uh, are not active all the time. Um, there are base stations that uh, collect data and control the operation of the sensors. So we have two kinds of base stations, or so a base station that has two types of functionality. And in fact, some of the base stations that we have um, are likely to be mobile. So sometimes we do have uh, users doing readings of these sensors uh, and, and controlling their operation. Now, in terms of the sensor networks that I'm talking about here, there are some differences of the new sensor networks that I'm talking about and the old ones. What are the differences? One is scale. Imagine an array of sensors that, that has 10,000 nodes as opposed to 100. Also imagine that the sensors that I'm talking about, these nodes, the 10,000 nodes, are deployed in an ad hoc manner as opposed to a pre-planned location type location by location deployment. So for example, these sensors could be scattered on a field completely randomly. Uh, The extension of the network that I'm talking about could take place without involving any administrative intervention and without having any trusted third party. The environment in which this uh, network is going to be used, it's also different from the environments that we've seen before. These environments could be hostile. Namely, the sensor activity can be monitored, the sensor can be captured, they could be replicated, they could could be inserted in the network, and then input could be manipulated. So this is sort of the kind of new technology that I'm postulating. Now I've seen a couple of networks like this, they are used in, in defense, um, but you could have something similar to this. So the claim is that this kind of new technology introduces unique, new and unique vulnerabilities, and the adversary that we have uh, is different, and consequently we require new methods and tools to cope with this adversary. Uh, in particular, uh, we have what's called emergent algorithm and emergent properties to deal with this uh, adversary, which are basically probabilistic properties of the system that we try to make happen. Now, there are other examples that that do have the same characteristics, other than sensor networks, like mesh networks. Uh, people are postulating vehicular networks, which are probably the most uh, realistic example of ad hoc networks. Uh, they um, and, and those networks might have similar, in fact, do have similar characteristics. Okay, so let's see uh, why these sensor networks that I postulate uh, have this problem. In other words, what causes these networks to be vulnerable to this new kind of adversary? And in fact, what causes these networks to be vulnerable is their very success. Just like with the internet. The very success of the Internet enabled new new adversaries. So what do I mean by success here? Well, one is that these networks are very easily deployed and extended. Uh, In fact, they are very scalable. You simply drop sensors at desired locations or desired areas, and um, these nodes would establish connectivity and key connectivity, because obviously you have to use crypto to encrypt the data and protect the integrity of the data between nodes. They establish this key and network connectivity on their own. No third party, no trusted third party, no administrative intervention, (coughs) no base station intervention. They are low cost. Uh, basically, these um, nodes could be built with technology that you can buy at Radio Shack, and they are very low cost. Uh, in in fact, a node could cost roughly under ten dollars. The processor might cost a dollar. Um, then the sensing uh, type of equipment would cost maybe a little more, but overall. Uh, each one of them would cost under $10. So you could easily have $10,000, I mean, 10,000 nodes being deployed. The problem is that this low cost causes um, the vulnerability of not being able to shield these nodes. Why? Because node shielding, the technology to shield these nodes, both the sensing part and the processor part, is maybe about, Three to four orders of magnitude more expensive than the node itself. So for example, if you look at the top of the scale of shielding technology, you might find something like the IBM 4758, which is this very highly protected card which is uh, shielded through various layers of of, uh, metallic shielding and resin shielding that has in, inside the box, uh, inside this card, you have temperature sensors, uh, ionized rad, rad, ionizing radiation sensors, voltage sensors, um, pressure sensors that have their own battery and has an, an, an erasable memory, battery backed erasable memory, such that if somebody tampers with the box, the memory disappears. This costs about $4,000, right? It's very sophisticated, very nice protection. It's level four physical protection on the NISC-FIPS 140 scale, but it's very expensive. You cannot really afford this uh, for each one of the sensors that, that you deploy. Okay, so what can happen? Well, first of all, before I tell you what can happen, let me show you just one example why keying is so trivial in... A key connectivity is trivial in the sensor network. So, so imagine that you have a neighborhood uh, of sensors like the ones uh, seen here. So you have um, six sensors in a neighborhood. And these sensors are keyed in the following way. So we are going to use a probabilistic key redistribution scheme. This is one of the many that have been proposed. In fact, it happens to be the first one. Not necessarily the best one, but it's certainly the first one. So imagine that we have a pool of random keys. This pool could have roughly about, say, a million keys. That's about 2 to the 20 keys. right? Out of a space of 2 to the 128, the 2 to the 20 keys is a very small pool, of course. So you have a small pool of random keys. And out of this pool, you draw k keys, where k is a very small number, say 75 to 200. So you randomly draw, say, up to 200 keys fixed number, and you insert those keys, you store them into the memory of the first sensor out of the 10,000. Put the keys back into the pool, draw randomly another K keys, say 200 keys, install them in the second sensor, put them back, and repeat the process 10,000 times. This is offline. After you've done this, throw the sensors randomly on a field. Well, Obviously, you are going to get in the random drawing of the skills from these keys from a fairly small pool of random secret keys. obviously you are going to get some collisions, so obviously you are going to get some shared keys between <laughs> nodes in the same neighborhood, not between all nodes in the same neighborhood but between some, and then you can play with your parameters with k and with p to increase the sharing or decrease the sharing, okay. So these lines that you see between the sensors, uh, between the yellow sensors, represent the keys that happen to be shared between nodes. And what you notice is that some lines have the same color. And that's a very unfortunate effect, because, for example, if node B receives via the, the blue keyed connection a message which is mac'd, namely has a message authentication code with it, uh, the B node Will know will not know whether that MAC message comes from the southernmost node or comes from the one of the two northern nodes which also share a blue key. So this essentially says that node-to-node authentication is no longer guaranteed. This clever scheme that I described uh, has this uh, drawback among others. However, um, we can mitigate this, and the mitigation is a subject of a different different talk, but we can mitigate this drawback. The point of this example is that we pre-keyed these nodes, we randomly scattered them, and the nodes themselves broadcast the, their key IDs, and when they notice collision between the key IDs, they knew that the nodes knew that they have shared keys with their neighbors. So a very simple protocol that requires absolutely no security uh, would enable us to establish key connectivity, no third-party interaction, no administrator interaction, just self-organization. Okay, so this is supposed to be a a useful feature. If you want to extend the network, you simply draw, I mean, you simply uh, throw more, uh, more, more sensors uh, that were loaded with those randomly drawn keys from the pool that I was talking about. Very easy extension. Again, no third-party interaction, no trusted, uh, no trusted administrator. Okay. Now, um, so imagine three neighborhoods like the ones that, you've, that you see here. And notice what happens. Um, the The solid lines between sensors represent shared keys. And of course, the dashed blue lines... Uh, point out to the fact that some sensor nodes will have shared keys with nodes in neighborhoods with which they cannot communicate in one hop. Remember, the sensors communicate via radio broadcast uh, within limited ranges, say 30 meters, right, or 50 meters. And I could end up having, I'm a node, and I could end up sharing a key with a node which is far away with which I cannot communicate, but I do have a shared key. So those are the blue lines um, shown in the figure. Now, imagine that node 3 in a neighborhood I is actually being captured by an adversary. In other words, an adversary picks up this sensor. And what it can do with it, uh, the first thing that it can do, it can take it apart and download its state. And in fact, download its state on a replica. It can replicate the node with radio shack equipment. So it builds a clone a matter of fact, instead of building a clone, it builds actually two clones. And it turns out that the two clones which are being built can be inserted in neighborhoods J and neighborhoods K, the left neighborhoods on the slide. Why? Because node 3 happened to have had shared keys with those two neighborhoods. And somehow the adversary figured that out. How did the adversary figure it out? Well, the adversary listened to the First protocol in which key IDs were being exchanged, and noticed that that this uh, node three had a collision in terms of the key IDs between it and some node in neighborhood J, and the same thing, noticed a collision in the IDs of keys between node three and uh, some other node in neighborhood K. So obviously he knew that there are a shared key there, and that's a neighborhood where the adversary chose to insert the replicas. Now, if the adversary doesn't know where the key collision is, the adversary needs to do a little more work and basically uh, replicate more nodes and throw them randomly in the network, and in fact, some of them would connect to the network. Okay, so now what have we got? Now we've got a situation in which some nodes of the network are... um, Legitimate nodes and some nodes are adversarial nodes, and they are all connected. In some sense, you could view this as being essentially a cancer growing in the network. We get uh, these nodes, which are clearly under the control of the adversary, that could in some sense bypass most of the protections of the network. In fact, uh, one of the things that could happen if you have an intrusion detection system here at work that's threshold based then these replicated nodes could actually have uh, abnormal exhibit abnormal behavior but distribute the abnormal behavior among the multiple copies so as to stay under the threshold and This is a particularly egregious thing. clearly, the replicas could block legitimate transmissions, could modify legitimate transmissions, this replica under adversary control and could also partition the network. So, for example, in, in this uh, picture, uh, the, the three red lines uh, show communication between the three collaborating nodes to block the traffic being forwarded through them. Okay, now, how is this adversary different from what we've seen before? The standard adversary definition that, uh, that we had uh, to date it's called the Dolev-Yao adversary. This is sort of a generalization of the old needham Schroeder adversary. So what's the Dolev-Yao adversary about? You see it occasionally in literature and we all think that it's magic, but it's actually three things. The first thing is that the Dolev-Yao adversary controls the network operation. What that means is that you have a man in the middle everywhere. Between any two links you have a man in the middle. Right? That's the first characteristic. So, So it the DoLevia adversary could read, replay, forge, block, modify, and insert messages anywhere in the network. Okay. Second aspect of the adversary is that uh, the DoLevia adversary can send and receive any message to and from any legitimate principle. Or can send a message to and receive a message from any legitimate principle. Third is that the DoLevia adversary could be actually a registered user in the network. So it could be a legitimate principle of the network. However, the deloitte adversary cannot do a number of things. So for example, it cannot discover another legitimate principle secret. In other words, if there is a faraway node or even a close node to the adversary, the deloitte adversary cannot go inside the node and say, give me the keys and obtain the secret keys, for example, passwords, or any other crypto keys the node might have. It cannot do that. It cannot capture legitimate principal nodes and modify their inputs, for example. And it cannot modify the network topology and the trust topology in the network. So, for example, the dolev adversary cannot do what we just showed on the previous slides. It cannot replicate, capture, and replicate nodes. Okay. So, in some sense, <clears throat> that instance of the adversary described on the previous slide is more powerful than the dolev adversary. In fact, there are some arguments um, which indicated that the kind of adversary we might have in a sensor network might actually be only different from the leviao not more powerful. And the reason why people argue that it's different is because they argue that the adversary would want to behave in a stealthy manner. In, in other words, would not want to exercise more power than a legitimate node, a legitimate sensor, and consequently, since sensors operate only by, via radio broadcast, you had the atomicity of broadcast, meaning that you could not block, for example, selectively other sensors' transmission if the adversary had to be stealthy. That happens <clears throat> not to be the case in practice. And the idea is that a node, an adversarial node, can always broadcast, can always be in the neighborhood of selected nodes and broadcast at half power, for example. So the the interference that would, introduce, that would be introduced by the adversary would not cover a large area, but would cover only the area where the selected nodes or node would be. So technology enables us to do that relatively easily. And also, by the way, technology also enables us for this adversarial node to jam selectively and block transmission by not following the CS- CSMA/CD protocol. Right. So uh, a, a node Basically, uh, running the protocol in software or firmware could modify that and not back off and completely jam transmission in a fairly legitimate manner actually all right so so now the question is uh, what do you do about uh, this new adversary at least this in in this instance so um, there are a couple of solutions that that um, have been proposed to detect the presence of an an adversary that replicates nodes. What are those solutions? The first one is actually a naive solution, one that doesn't work in practice, certainly not in a sensor network. So the naive solution goes as follows. Suppose that each node has an ID, which the node cannot change. And suppose that each node has a set of other nodes as neighbors that it knows about and it certainly knows about because it exchanged keys with the neighbors so suppose that each node would be required periodically to sign its ID and the list of neighbors with which it has shared keys and transmit this message, broadcast this message everywhere in the network periodically so ID, neighbors which we call the locator of the node, not a location because we don't want to broadcast the node's physical location, right? Otherwise, we give it all away to an adversary. But the set of neighbors and the signatures. And the signature. Now, what's going to happen is if periodically every node does that, some nodes would notice that they get two messages, at least two messages, with the same ID, different locators, different signature. What that means is that now for this particular node that has this ID, we got a collision, we got a replica, or at least a replica. So at that point, the detecting node, the node that detects collisions, the collision in ID, would tell everyone, look, we got a replica in the network, here are the two replicas, destroy all your keys if you share any keys with that node ID. So consequently, the replicas would be eliminated, so would the valid node, of course, because we couldn't tell what was a replica and what was a valid node, which is, of course, not the major problem that we want to solve. Okay, the problem with this protocol is that it requires order n-square messages, and n-square messages, when you have n10,000, is going to be a fairly large number, and if we have even a fraction, a relatively small fraction of that, uh, we are going to have a big problem we want to reduce the number of messages by at least a square root of n, a factor of square root of n. Because um, 10 to the 8th messages is going to kill the battery of any network in no time. So a more (coughs) realistic protocol here is going to be a protocol which establishes an emergent property. And this is going to be a probabilistic protocol. In other words, detection is not going to be perfect like in the naive case. So here, each node, again, broadcasts uh, an ID, a set of neighbors, which we call the locator, and the signature of the ID and the set of neighbors. But now it's going to broadcast this to G randomly picked nodes. So if I'm a node, I'm not going to broadcast this to everybody. I choose randomly G nodes in the network. Uh, G could be, say... Seven eight, ten, possibly slightly more, and I broadcast my um, i d locator and signature to them furthermore, what i'm going to do i 'm going to insist that everyone along the broadcast paths to the witnesses to this to this g witnesses uh, stores the broadcast so what's going to happen is uh, we are going to have collisions, not just in the witnesses. We have co- collisions of the witnesses between IDs, usually via the birthday paradox. But now we are going to have earlier collisions because intermediate nodes make sense that, that they received two messages that have the same ID. Well, Monte Carlo simulations show you that uh, uh, this, this protocol uh, which we call the line-selected multicast, because uh, these multicast lines uh, intersect, and these lines which are selected, the intersections which are selected, give us this, uh, this detection property for replicas. This line-selected multicast protocol gives us a probability of, say, 70 to 80% of detection. Not 100% definitely, the complexity here is much lower than before by a square root of n, so we have order n square root of n. But, again, we have to put up with less than perfect security. Okay, now, what do we do if it's less than perfect security? Well, we have to do risk analysis. We have to figure out what is the risk of node capture replication and insertion uh, relative to the complexity of this protocol because the f- more frequently you run the protocol the better off you are but you cannot run the protocol very frequently because obviously this protocol requires uh, transmission energy which is much more difficult to save on than computation energy so once you start sending messages you are going to uh, you are going to have to spend uh, more energy than you know, reasonable computations that you might do for sensing. So the trade-off here uh, in risk analysis is the risk of not detecting the adversary between two instances of uh, running the protocol. And this, of course, you can quantize in the context of your application. So um, let me conclude and uh, point out in conclusion that there are a lot more problems, in the way of problems, there is a lot more in the way of problems here that point to the existence of a new adversary than the just a simple example that I gave you. And I'll give you a couple of other examples in, in a minute. But the first conclusion is that new technologies really um, cause new challenges and at the same time new opportunities. So essentially what I'm postulating is that every time we introduce a new technology, even before we introduce it, we do a systematic security analysis of the vulnerabilities that it introduces and possibly the definition of a new adversary. In other words, it's really our duty to to perform this, even if they are mental experiments, uh, to find out what the new vulnerabilities might be. Unless we do this, we are going to deploy new systems with vulnerabilities not encountered before that might be very difficult to fix afterwards. And in between, we are going to have to use old protocols that are not specifically designed for the vulnerabilities that we are talking about. Second point is uh, countermeasures. The countermeasures that we come up with need not be perfect. In the past, particularly people who worked on formal specification and verification techniques, sought uh, perfect solutions. In other words, sought proofs of countering the adversary effect in the system. That essentially gives you a, a probability, one, uh, say, detection of the adversary, or actually probability one elimination of the adversary, prevention. Or the opposite, probability zero of adversary uh, performing an attack. This kind of asymptotic properties, zero-one probabilities, don't really exist in practice. And what I wanted to point out is that new technologies and new kind of adversaries make that plainly obvious. Even if you can come up with probability-one solutions, sometimes they are utterly impractical, and and you have to go to probabilistic solutions, which are much more reasonable. So we must accept this notion that some of our, our security countermeasures measures are going to be probabilistic, and we must accept the idea of performing risk analysis. In other words, we have to institutionalize this uh, in this idea in our, our security posture in the future, uh, whether we like it or not. And it's, this is going to be a change of mindset for a lot of us who, particularly in the academia, who have been used to the idea that we actually produce perfect solutions. Uh, so what might be future technologies that, uh, that might require reassessment of vulnerabilities and adversaries? <clears throat> One kind of future technology that I've looked at recently are these vehicular networks. And this exists at this point only on paper. But they pause um, certain interesting challenges. So a vehicular network consists of two components. One is a network uh, that enables the vehicle to talk to an infrastructure, and an infrastructure to a vehicle. Very simply, imagine uh, a a radio-equipped vehicle and even an 802.11-equipped vehicle that talks to uh, base stations uh, on the road, which might be attached to billboards or to various road signs. And clearly, We have a mobility problem here that we have to solve, but this is very high mobility. This is not a user traveling from one base station to another walking or flying, and on different days, the user would be a different network location. Uh, This is uh, a a network in which the mobility of the nodes is very very high, very high-speed mobility. Secondly, we also have an ad hoc network problem because these base stations uh, could be far away, I mean we are talking about tens of kilometers possibly uh, between two base stations, so uh, essentially, what would happen is alert messages are going to be uh, safety messages are going to be relayed from various cars that detect them to other cars on the road in both directions of the traffic directions of the traffic. so now we are going to have some rudimentary form of an ad-hoc network. The problem here is how do we establish what we call trust, and I'll define what trust means in a minute here, between various nodes of this highly mobile network and the infrastructure, and among the highly mobile nodes themselves, particularly since these highly mobile nodes don't form a network that lasts more than perhaps a few minutes. So how do we establish trust? What's trust here? How do I believe, how do I establish belief in the contents of the message, even if I know where this message comes from? I know that the message comes from the car ahead of me. But what makes me believe that the content of that message is is valid? Okay? So we essentially have to build this metrics of trust that we apply to all the information that we can gather about the car ahead of us, and then automatically make the decision as to whether we believe this message, we believe this warning, or we ignore it. So this is one of the things that I I call trust establishment without an infrastructure. What about accountability with privacy? So one of the things that we'd like to do is to make sure that whoever sends a message is accountable for the contents of that message. And with this, I think I'm offline. Um, But I'll continue to to pursue the last two points. So the idea here is that uh, we want privacy, we want basically anonymity, and we want unlinkability of messages with cars. In other words, if I broadcast, for example, a message signed by the same key repeatedly uh, of a period of time, say, of, of half an hour, then obviously people will find out that Uh, whatever I broadcast can be traced to that particular public key that verifies the signature and eventually they find out that that's my node even if I uh, broadcast that message under an anonymous license plate not on my regular license plates it's an electronic license plate so somehow I have to make sure that whatever I broadcast cannot be linked to the same node all the time this might require for example the uploading of a large number of public-private key pairs in in the system, and changing these keys periodically so as to establish unlinkability. Who knows? But this is certainly a a major area of of concern, at least to the people involved in vehicular network security. Third, and very importantly, is uh, user interfaces and security management in subsystems. Who manages the security of such a network? Is it your gas station attendant who's going to distribute keys to you? Uh, Is it uh, it, uh, perhaps the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles? Uh, Who is it that sets up the network and administers the security of of this uh, vehicular network? Uh, Very unclear at this point. We all postulate all this governmental intervention uh, and infrastructure. Is it the highway administration somehow that establishes these base stations on, on the roads and the various kinds of electronic road signs? At this point, we don't know. But it's certainly an interesting area to envision, postulate, and worry about uh, adversaries. Okay, that's roughly all I had to say.